We're in the book of Ruth tonight. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I believe next week will be our final sermon. And every week my, uh, my recaps, they go longer and longer. I'm just trying, I'm going to really be brief and hit on a couple key things tonight for the new people, for those of you who have forgotten. Some of you, you could probably do this. You're getting to know the story so well, and that's good. The book is named after Ruth. She's a woman. She's a Moabite. Big deal. Really big deal. Only book in the entire Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. 39 books in the Old Testament, only one named after a non-Israelite. She's a Moabite. There's a lot of anti-Moabite sentiment on the part of the people in Israel toward people from Moab. They don't really like them, just kind of like how we don't really like ISIS. That's, that's how they feel. They don't like them at all. And, and the story takes place during the days of the judges. It's a, it's a very dark time. This is pre-Israelite monarchy. No kings have, have come yet. And there's a famine in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. The irony, there's, there's no food in the house of bread. And it centers upon a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. Elimelech, he makes the decision to move his family to Moab. There's food in Moab. Moab borders Israel to the east. Apparently there's food there. They go to Moab. They get there. Elimelech dies. His two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women. Then they die. Very bleak story. We're five verses in. We've already killed off three characters. Naomi's buried her husband. She's buried her two sons. It's, it's kind of a sad opening. But God hasn't forgotten about Naomi. She's, she's buried her husband and her two sons. God hasn't forgotten about her. Just as God hasn't forgotten about some of you going through some tough stuff right now. He comes, he intervenes on behalf of not just Naomi, but all his people in chapter 1, verse 6. He relieves the famine. The rains return. The crops begin to grow. Naomi can go home. But she doesn't want Orpah and Ruth to come with her. They want to come with her. She, she probably would want them to come, but she knows that they can't. She knows what anti-Moabite sentiment there is on the part of her own people toward them. She knows that they won't fit in. And in a society in which for a woman, your economic well-being would be directly linked to having a husband, being married, she knew that they had a much better chance to survive, to, to have food to eat if they stayed in Moab and married a nice Moabite boy. So she persuades at least one of her widowed daughters-in-law to go home, Orpah. But Ruth, she's not going to have any of it. She's loyal to the end. And she gives perhaps what is one of the most famous uh, phrases and sentences in all of Scripture. She, she tells Naomi, after much arguing and tears, she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. I will not leave you. Should it cost me my life, I will not leave you, Naomi. So they go, they return, they arrive to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The narrator gives us a little clue at the beginning of chapter 2. There's a guy named Boaz who's related to Elimelech. Nothing more, nothing less. they got to figure out how to have food somehow. So, beginning of chapter 2, Ruth asks Naomi permission to glean in the fields. So she goes and gleans. She comes across a field that happens to belong to Boaz. Boaz shows up that day. He asks his general manager. He's like, hey, who's, who's that? So, oh, that's, that's Ruth. 
the Moabite, Naomi's daughter. Okay? Goes, introduces himself to her, and lets her know that she can come to his fields anytime, that she's going to be safe there, doesn't have to worry. He's very, very kind to her, very generous. She comes home that day, and she essentially has done about two weeks' worth of wages in one day. Her mom, Naomi, knows, like somebody was noticing her little girl. What's going on? She's like, well, his name was Boaz. Boaz, he's, he's one of our redeemers. He's, he's related to Elimelech, my husband. And there Naomi begins to hope that perhaps God might use this man Boaz to redeem their family. Well, weeks pass. Ruth comes home every day. Naomi says, you know, did he talk to you? He's like, he said, hi, mom. That's it. That's it? Yeah. Nothing more, nothing less. Naomi decides to engineer a plan. She tells Ruth to essentially go propose to him in the middle of the night while he's out sleeping at the threshing floor. She does this. She proposes to him. He's pretty shocked, but she he accepts her proposal. Says, yes, I'll marry you. Everything seems great. And then he says, but there's another dude who, I know this is going to sound crazy, has first dibs on you. And I can't marry you until I check with him to see if he wants to marry you. No, you're not from around here. You're from Moab, but that's how it works here. Okay. I promise, though, next morning I'm going to do everything tomorrow that I can do to, to fix the situation, to resolve this, to work this out. Now we've arrived at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1. Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. The Boaz that we see in these first two verses strikes me as a lot different than the Boaz in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he seems to be this kind of slow mover who won't actually initiate anything with Ruth, even though like he'd totally be awesome. He's thinking, you know, man, if, if, if she likes me back, but he's thinking, no, nah, there's no way. And, and so he's, he comes across, I think initially in chapter 3, as almost passive character. And yet here... It's like, what's going on with Boaz? This guy is a lot different. He's not passive. This guy's taking the lead. This guy's initiating. It's Boaz who calls the court into session. It's Boaz who goes and sits down. It's Boaz who notices the other redeemer, calls for him to come over. It's Boaz who summons the ten elders. The other characters merely respond to his initiation. Him taking the initiative and for that reason, I like to come and try to resolve what, why is that, what's, what's happening here. And I think, to be fair, the slow-moving, non-initiating, taking Boaz that we see in chapter 3 is the same guy in chapter 4. But I think this helps us understand, as many people voiced in small groups when asking questions, okay, he seems like he's spitting his game, but does he just have no in-game? Like, he's being so nice to her, and then, like, he's got... Like, nothing, he's not, he's not interested? Is he really not interested? I don't know that was a, a hard thing we're trying to work through. I think this is, really goes to support 
What I argued in, in chapter 3 is the fact that, one, Boaz doesn't think he has a chance with her. It's pretty clear in chapter 3 when he essentially makes the statement that you could have had any of the young men that you wanted. He doesn't think that he ever had a chance. Furthermore, when Naomi is giving Ruth the instruction to go to the threshing floor to propose to him, she tells her to put on the cloak. And as I argue that many commentators believe the reference in chapter 3 during Naomi's planning for her to go put on that cloak was a reference to her to take off her mourning cloak. So be like, you need to take off your mourning clothes because he very well might not even think that you're interested. Like you need to take off your wedding ring. You need to change your Facebook status from in a relationship to just nothing or, or single or something. Like you need to let him know. I think this is why and how we reconcile this seeming difference between this guy who seems like he's not willing to take any initiative to this guy in chapter four. It's like, whoa, where'd this guy come from? So anyways... We continue. He says he goes up to the gate. That's what the narrator says. This is idiomatic for, or another way to say, Boaz is going up to court. The city gates had two functions, obviously for defense. Outside the walls, they would have towers right outside the walls with cutouts, windows, stations, levels. We could go to help defend the gates, defend the city, have a good vantage point of any approaching armies. But the city gates in the early Iron Age in Palestine also doubled for the courtroom. In fact, right inside the city gates, there would be benches plastered right inside. So when Boaz comes and he sits down, because some people are like, yeah, he's probably tired, he didn't get much sleep last night. Fair enough, but when he comes and sits down, on those benches right inside the city gates, the citizens of Bethlehem who noticed and observed him would have been like, oh, I guess Boaz has some type of official business today. The act of sitting down is the act of showing and letting everyone know that you're there, you're, you're next in line for official business. He's, he's got some type of business to take care of. So he summons the elders of the city, Sits down. No sooner had that happened than this dude who has first dibs on Ruth, the other redeemer, happens to just pass by. Now, if you're here for the first time, you might say, well, that's rather fortuitous. <laughs> that's good timing, right? That's good that it just worked out that way. But if you've been here for the last seven sermons, you know that that's not what's going on. That God's sovereign hand is orchestrating these events based on His perfect timing. I mean, this whole story, if something could have gone wrong, it would have gone wrong. Their arrival in Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, they arrive at the beginning of barley harvest. That's cool. Not really into barley, but whatever. But no, when you understand the barley was the first of all the harvest to be taken in, that would have ensured... These two widows, one being alien, that they would have had a much better chance of having enough food for the rest of the year. Barley would be the first to be harvested. Well, good timing. Could have come at a different time. They came at that time. And then you think back to the fact that Ruth went and gleaned in a field. She went and gleaned in a field. Remember, you know the story, the Mosaic Law. They had the edges of the field. You couldn't touch it. 
Um, that was for the poor people to come. And if you harvest anything and you dropped, you had to leave it on the ground for the poor people. But some of you may remember, the interesting thing is, even though that was the right for the poor people, that right would frequently be denied. So when you'd go and you say, hey, can I go glean in the fields? They'd say, no, get out of here. People would frequently be denied access to the fields. She's granted access. And of all the fields she could have gleaned, she happens to glean in the field of Boaz. And the, the first day she's there, he happens to show up. He happens to notice her. He happens to be very kind to her. And then later on, her mom's got this crazy idea for her to go in the middle of the night, just as scandalous as it sounds, to, and propose to him. A woman proposing to a man. This would have been just as strange in the ancient Near East as it sounds today. And an employee proposing to an employer. An alien proposing to a citizen. Yeah, good luck with all of that happening perfectly and not getting messed up. And yet this redeemer just so happens to be walking by as Boaz sits down. The Hebrews don't believe in chance. To this day, they don't. I was talking to Rabbi Goldman. who worked with him last summer at Fort Knox. I said, is there anything, would you, would you say that there is such a possibility of chance or randomness? He's like, no. As the ancient proverb declares, man may roll the dice or cast the lot. Think of a dice. Man may roll the dice or cast the lot, but the Lord determines how it lands, how it plays out. That's Proverbs 16.33. Amos tells us, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has brought it upon the city? It's in the Bible, yes, Amos 3.6. No, it's, it's not fortuitous. It's not, you just happen to be walking by. He walked by exactly when God had willed and ordained for the Redeemer to walk by. And that's what you see throughout this whole story. I mean, if this was up to chance, goodness. I mean, they would have struck out a long time ago. You have a big God, guys. A huge God. Who plans everything for our good and His glory. And sometimes it's hard to understand that. In the middle of our pain... I've heard this illustration before. God's not like a firefighter who responds to situations. What's going on? Okay, I'll be right there. But rather a surgeon who carefully plans every cut, every detail, every incision, though sometimes it may feel uncomfortable. But ultimately he does it for our good and his glory. He is a big God, a giant God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He wills to do. No, it's no accident that this other Redeemer just so happens to be walking by at this moment. Like He could have walked by at any other moment. As well as all the other events that have taken place. It could have not worked out that way. One thing only would have taken one thing to go wrong. And yet, these obstacles... Our obstacles that we face as human beings, they're not obstacles for the God who spoke the world into existence. <laughs> the God who told mountains to move, and they moved. It's not hard for him to will for that Redeemer to walk by at the precise time. Little point, big application. Perhaps the 
other interesting point is the fact that the narrator doesn't mention the name of this Redeemer. A narrator who, up to this point in the story, had been so careful with names, so careful with details, how could this narrator possibly forget what the name of this Redeemer was? Why is that? We simply know this Redeemer by, he's the Redeemer, whoever this other guy is. Why does the narrator not tell us? Well, one commentator tries to explain it this way. Whatever the motivation of the narrator, the effect is to diminish our respect for him. Now, to be fair, there's nothing overly negative said about him, but he will quickly disappear from this story as nothing more than just a footnote. And so, Boaz is called the court in decession. Everyone is there who needs to be there. In verses 3 and 4, He has his opening remarks. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Abide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. The institution of Redeemer deals with the redemption of land. As per Leviticus 25, 25 to 30, we always hear about redeeming Ruth. The institution of Redeemer has nothing to do with redeeming another person, has everything to do with redeeming land. I'm not going to read Leviticus 25, 25 to 30, but there's the reference, and I can quickly summarize it. The land of a family's was never meant to depart from that family. But should it? Should the land, by some freak accident, happen to to leave the family, (coughs) then the institution of Redeemer was there. And the Redeemer could come and buy it back. And the party that had it would have to sell. Boaz tells us that Naomi is selling the land. Naomi is not selling the land. And I realize, considering the emphasis we put on Scripture, sola scriptura, that this might sound strange that I seem right now to be contradicting what the text says. But the fact is, is she's not selling the land despite what the verse says. It's a, a poor translation of it. Because Naomi had no legal right to sell the land. Numbers chapter 27, 8 to 11 explains what happens in situations like Naomi's situation when your husband should die. Your husband dies, the land goes to your children. If there are no children, the land goes to the brothers of the husband. If there are no brothers, it goes to whoever's next in line, seemingly bypassing the widow, the wife of the dead. This is why within Israelite law and custom, there was such an emphasis put on taking care of the widows, the orphans, the aliens. So when it says that Naomi is selling the land, she's not selling the land. What she's doing is she is authorizing the court to enact the institution of Redeemer. That's what's taking place. 
She's not selling it and then, all right, now I've got like 150K in my bank account. That's not happening. She's authorizing the court to enact Leviticus 25, 25 to 30, so that the redeemers can come and if they so want to, buy back the land so that it stays within the family. Now, one of the questions, I think this was Megan's question or some people's questions, what happened? They've been gone for 10 years. It's been 10 years since Naomi had left, and, and now she's back at least 10 years. What happened to the land? What happened to the estate of her husband Elimelech while they were gone? Well, we can only speculate what happened. Perhaps it fell into disrepair, but whatever happened to it, it seems right now that someone else outside of the family currently owns it. Which is why we're having this hearing, you might say. Which is why Boaz has now let the court know that Naomi has authorized the institution of Redeemer in order to buy back the land so that it stays within the family. You say, this is a lot of muddy details, yes, but it seems to be key in Boaz's strategy to earn the right to marry Ruth. You say, this doesn't seem like it's about Ruth, it's about Ruth. And so, he introduces the issue. The Redeemer thinks for a moment. He says, I'll take that deal. I'll buy it back. Yeah. This is essentially kind of like the first precedence of imminent domain, really. I mean, they have to sell it back to the Redeemer. He says, I'll buy it back. I'll take that deal. Then in verse 5 of chapter 4, Boaz decides to go all juris doctorate on the Redeemer. He is, I mean, think of whatever like TV law show, this is about to go down. And he's about to complicate the situation And it's about to get really muddy. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, the Redeemer just said, I'll take that deal, I'll buy the land. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, verse 5, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz draws... An application from the Leveret marriage prescribed in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, which would say, in a situation where Ruth is married to Malon, and Malon dies before they have any kids, then if there was any other unmarried brothers, they would be obligated to marry Ruth and provide a descendant. That's what Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. It doesn't go anything unlike the land, the role of redeeming when it comes to the land, Leviticus 25. That one just goes on and on and on, down the line. The role of the leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, it stops at the brother. If there's an unmarried brother, but it doesn't make any other prescriptions beyond that. And yet, Boaz has this at the center of his argument. It seems that both of these issues, the leveret marriage in which you would redeem the individual and the institution of redeemer in which you'd redeem the land, were neither exhaustive nor restrictive. And the principles from these laws could be applied in situations not covered within the text. And so he says, well, you want to buy the land? That's fine. you got to take Ruth the Moabite. The fact that he mentions her as the Moabite It's probably because he's trying to play on anti-Moabite sentiment that he assumes the other Redeemer will have. Ruth the Moabite? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to get, get myself into that. 
His argument is strong. His argument's not airtight. There's cracks in Boaz's argument. It's strong. He says this, Brother, referring to the Redeemer, if I may paraphrase the story now, we may not legally be obligated to redeem Ruth, Naomi, but we are morally obligated. Our brother Elimelech, our relative Elimelech, lay dead and buried in Moab. And how can we, as his redeemers, redeem the land, take his inheritance, and then yet leave his wife and Ruth and not help them? No, we may legally not be obligated, but certainly we are morally obligated, almost foreshadowing the words of Jesus' little brother, James, when he says, it is a sin when you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it. That's his argument. And things are no longer clear. Not an airtight argument, but a strong argument. How can we take his inheritance and yet not give him an heir? Not continue the line of Elimelech in a society in which in the ancient world, one of the greatest curses that you could pronounce upon someone was that may your seed die out with you. We're not legally obligated to do this. Can we... Can we not at least say that we are morally obligated, that it's not the right thing to do? How can we take his land and not continue his legacy? The Redeemer has four options. How he can respond to the situation. One, he can say, all right, I'll redeem the land. I'll redeem Ruth, and I'll take care of Naomi. Provide him with an heir. Continue on his legacy. That's an option. Two, he can say, I'll take the land and pledge to marry Ruth, and then after the land deal has completed, back out on marrying Ruth. It's an option. Of course, if he takes option two, it will bring great shame and dishonor upon his family. The third option, he can sympathize with Boaz. He can say, Boaz, even you say that we're not, neither one of us, that is, are legally obligated to enact the leveret marriage as prescribed in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. We're not. I, I appreciate your zeal, your care for the line of Elimelech, but I know what the law is, and I'll take the land and be on my way. The problem, if he takes that option, as I said, Boaz's argument is not airtight, has cracks, but it's strong. And should he do that, he would dishonor his family. Boaz has already said, we're not legally obligated, but we are morally obligated. It's the right thing to do. And so, the Redeemer takes the fourth option. In order to save face, he says, I'm out. You, you take it, this isn't going to work out for me. I know I said I wanted it. Yeah, this, let's just forget I said that and move on. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. So he says, I can't do it. And then he's going to give us why he can't do it. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, or I cannot redeem it. What does that mean, lest I impair my own inheritance? Well, 
That is the question. This is the reason why he chose option number four. He could have chose the first three, but he chooses option four. And the reason is in that phrase, lest I impair my own inheritance. It's not 100% clear what he means, but I think I can provide us enough of a hint, enough clues to at least get an overall idea. One, he establishes the fact that initially he crunched the numbers and he said, yeah, I'll redeem the land. This is going to be a good deal. And then when he realizes he also has to redeem Ruth, And he has to redeem Naomi. He's like, this is going to cost me a lot more. No thanks. Second, Boaz mentions Ruth as the Moabite. No doubt playing on anti-Moabite sentiment. So from the perspective of the Redeemer, I don't want that. I I I don't want to be married to a Moabite. Furthermore, I don't want to have a Moabite heir. If he continues the line of Elimelech, that heir will hold his entire estate doesn't want some Moabite half-breed muggle, you might say, <laughs> as the heir of his estate, lest I impair my own inheritance. No, Boaz, you take it, I'm out. And our story ends for the day. And we're left with this. We're left with two different redeemers. Two different men. Two different qualities of men. We see Boaz who leads. We see Boaz who, who's active, who, who takes the initiative. Boaz who's, who's willing to get his hands dirty and his feet muddy. And we see the other Redeemer who doesn't lead, who isn't active, who, who isn't taking the initiative. The other Redeemer, he's not willing He's willing to let someone else do it. He's he's willing to let someone else do what ought to be done. Moses is a good man. He's a noble man. He's a righteous man. He's a responsible man. The context here, don't forget, I know Ruth falls to the, the background in this story, but this is about him doing everything he can to be with the woman that he loves, that he wants to be. I can make a lot of applications right now. I got a lot of unmarried people that I'm talking to. And some of you guys maybe are at that point where I don't know if I should have a girlfriend, if I should, or if I should move the relationship to marriage, or if I should be looking for a girl. I'm going to tell you right now, if you can just do one thing well, is be a responsible man. So when you tell someone, I'm going to do this, follow through. You say, I'm going to be there at that time. Be there. But some of you guys, you can't even wake up for your classes in there in the afternoon. <laughs> I mean, come on. So, some of you guys, like, you're not responsible guys. Like, if you can't take responsibility for yourself, you shouldn't even so much as have like a a pet, let alone a girlfriend or a wife. Boaz is a responsible man. Some of you are, some of you aren't. Boaz is a guy who's willing to get his hands dirty and his boots muddy. Are you? Are you like the other dude, this other loser who the narrator doesn't even mention. 
Never taking the lead, never taking the initiative, never volunteering, never offering to help. Someone else will do it. Oh, Boaz will get to it. Let him do it. Passing the buck every stop. You're not a responsible man. You're not a noble man. You're like this clown over here without a name. You know, I, I, people always say, you know, it's especially within the church, there's a lot of dudes like this. A lot of people who love to come and warm a flipping bench once a week. Nothing more, nothing less. Keep everybody else at arm's distance. Never get too close. If there's help, let someone else do it. I'm just a consumer Christian. I'm just, I'm just here for the show, and then I'll see you next week, and you can yell at me some more, Joe. Right? Yeah. So they say, like, 10% of the people at the church do 90% of the work. Every pastor will say, yep, that's about it. Regardless of what way we make this application, I want you guys and gals to be the type of person like Boaz or at least strive to be like this guy. This guy who's willing when no one else is willing. This guy who leads when no one else wants to lead. This guy who takes the initiative when nobody else wants to. When it's inconvenient, when it's ugly, when, oh, well, they're just a Moabite after all. That's what I want. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for all of you. To be responsible men. And women. And the good news, for those of you who are like, crap, I'm a lot like that other Redeemer, if I'm being honest. The good news for all of us in here is that Boaz is a foreshadowing of the Redeemer that was to come. The one who lived the life we could not live. The one who died the death we should have died. The one who paid the price we could not afford to pay. The one who didn't care that we were ugly, Moabite, half-breeds. That we were, as Paul says in Romans 1.30, haters of God. As he says in Romans 5.10, enemies of God. As he says in Romans 8.7, our minds were hostile to God, unable to submit to God's law. And he said, don't care. Philippians 2 tells us he humbled himself, took on the appearance of a man, loved us all the way to the point of death. Despite the fact that we were Moabite-like and it was inconvenient and ugly and hard. Oh, that's the good news. Because that's Boaz's great-great-great-grandson. And that's the good news for all of us. Those who are like Boaz, those who are striving to be like Boaz, and quite frankly, those of us who just suck. And we're jokers like this Redeemer. It's good news for those of us like that. And if that's where you're at, repent and and ask God to help you to be the type of man, the type of example that we have in this story. The one who takes the lead, the one who initiates, the one who helps, even when it's ugly, it's inconvenient, who's willing to do what no one else is willing to do. I want to be like that man, and I want all of us, ladies included, to be like that person. The problem is, is it's hard. It's hard. And we're constantly at war with other things around us, vying for our affections, vying for our attention, vying for our priorities. And it's a battle. And we have to engage the enemy every day and say, Jesus, help me not to be like this, this lame dude over here. Help me to be like Boaz. 
Because today, honestly, I don't want to be like Boaz. Oh, that we might be honest enough to say that, honest enough to come to terms with the fact that apart from Christ, we can't do jack. So what I want to do right now is I want to pray for each and every one of you. I want the band to come. And I want us to reflect and think about the story, about the text, about about the message, about the words in this book. So as the band comes, I'd like to pray. Lord, we love you. You're a good God. You're a big God. A God who governs all things according to the counsel of your will. A God that has a plan even in the most minute details like Boaz at the city gates and the Redeemer shows up at that precise time. Lord, I pray for some of us that you would give us the strength to continue and to strive to be like this guy Boaz, ladies included, that we would be responsible men and women, not just consumer Christians who really aren't willing to help or go the extra mile or do much of anything, but warm a pew on a Sunday. I pray that we would be responsible men and women and that we would represent you well. Help us, God. Because what I want and what I, what I want for the people in here, it's, it's hard. And apart from you, God, apart from you helping and interceding and, and giving us that ability to be like Boaz, we, we're not going to be able to on our own. So help us, Jesus, as St. Augustine would pray so many centuries ago. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do. Enable us to do what we can only do with your help, your strength, your power. Amen.